Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we share the stories of how different actors up and down the value chain are working to take climate action through food. It's all about inspiring collaboration, discussing the good that is happening, the challenges we share, and realizing a common vision for our future food system. I'm your host, Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. shortages under the Soviet Union forced people to develop their own food strategies. Because they couldn't rely on institutions like the grocery store, the Baltics and other Soviet states went back to farming, foraging, and other historical models, developing alternative food pathways or an alternative food system. My guest today is Dr. Miklas Gribbens, a researcher at the Baltic Studies Center. He has built his academic career studying foraging, agro-food systems, and the sustainability transition in Central and Eastern Europe. In this episode, we discuss the four kinds of foragers and the different roles they play in the food system. This is particularly interesting given the increasing focus on wild or natural foods in many fine dining circles. Foraging is also controversial, existing in a delicate balance with nature. While in some cases, it's a key way for families to put food on the table, it can also lead to environmental degradation if overharvesting occurs. Wild foods are also hard to track, regulate, and certify, sometimes leading to black markets or food safety questions. We also talk about how countries like Latvia that have been engaging in sustainability solutions like the sharing economy, foraging, and eating local are not fully seen for their contributions. Sometimes, looking backwards can be the answer for how we move forward. I hope you enjoy the episode and that it inspires you to look at where the wild things are in your backyard. If you really like it, consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Supporting the show for a few dollars every month will help me to keep bringing you more great stories. You can do so at nordicfoodtechpodcast.substack.com. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to be here. And I'd love to start by talking about how you got into this area of study. So how did you end up studying the food system in the Latvian food system? Well, I'm a sociologist. I have a doctoral degree in sociology, but it's originally in sociology of education. Uh, but in the next day after I defended my thesis, I was approached by a professor, Tal Stisenkov, uh, who is the main person studying food in Baltic countries. And he invited me to participate uh, or to join his institute. And since then, it's been eight years ago, and since then I have grown into position of senior researcher and I'm uh, fully dedicated to studying only food in Baltics. And Latvia is a nation of about 2 million people, or about 13 people per square kilometer. How would you characterize the food system of Latvia? What's going on here when we talk about food? Well, to start with the low density, it is very different from what we would see in Western Europe. But then it's quite similar to what you would see in Nordic part of Europe. Transaction costs in the food system located here are significantly higher. So if you are living in a city, probably you will still have access to cheap food. But once you go outside the city, it suddenly means that your food is much more expensive, that possibilities to obtain food is just less there. So it means that you won't have often main retail chains operating so closely. So you would go to a smaller shop, which means that you will have a smaller selection of products and uh, 
more expensive product. And a lot of people in the countryside are self-sustaining when it comes to food, or a large portion of their yes. food is coming from the land or their own farms. Or so that's the second thing. Although transactions host costs are higher. On the other hand, we have more land, and that means more agricultural land, well, free or available, and more forested land. So, which means that quite often people haven't lost the way how to farm themselves. They are growing still something. It used to be some twenty years ago that you would have also quite often、uh, small cattle farms with just one or two dairy cows. Now the number is dropping, but you still have just farms growing veggies. Most people would probably be to some extent self-sufficient in providing themselves with tomatoes and salads and cucumbers. It was cucumbers. something like thirty percent about there. Well. It depends. The average percent would be something little bit below twenty, I would say. But then, when you look at the cities, it's around ten percent and、uh, subsistence. And、uh, if you look at countryside, it would be around thirty percent of produce people are getting either from their own、uh, farms or from farms of their relatives. Yeah, and I want to take us a little bit back into history too, because although geographically we're close and we're neighbors. There is a different shared history, and the way that the food system has evolved here is different than in the Nordics, and that's largely due to recent Soviet history. So maybe you can take us a little bit back in time to explain how that era of history has shaped what we see today. Well, to be honest, I think that although. Most of Baltic inhabitants living in Baltics wouldn't appreciate if you would frame the countries、uh, from the perspective of post-socialist state. Then again, it's hard to understand the, the daily practices and what's happening here if you don't take in consideration the recent history of、uh, Soviet Union. And、uh, one thing in particular, if we look at how food systems have、uh, developed, it's、uh, about、uh, food shortages in Soviet Union. So it meant that quite often people were forced to actually develop their own strategies how they obtain food, and while countries that weren't under Soviet Union developed or modernized their systems and developed new ways how to technologically engage with products and develop new new products as an outcome. In、uh, Baltics、uh, and in other Soviet states and Soviet satellite states, it meant that people are. Going back to these historical model, models, which meant that quite often at least some member in, of the family had a farm, and also it meant that、uh, foraging still exists in these countries. And、uh, the interesting thing with foraging is that it's not just it was individual strategy. When factories realized that they are lacking produce to process, they actually organized tours where they just took people to forage and paid them extra for the berries and mushrooms they carried out of the forest. So there was sort of institutionalized support to maintain the traditions as they were. Which obviously, while you look at Western countries and、uh, in, even in Some Nordic countries, these traditions are are vanishing, and then here there has they have been maintained because of system systematic system failures,、uh, which have resulted that we could take alternative food networks without even trying to have them.、Mm-hmm. We just have them because we our food systems failed so miserably that it wasn't possible to obtain food without looking for strat-、uh, alternative strategies. Can you speak a little bit more about what an alternative food system is and how we define that? What it looks like? It's a complicated question. If you look at the typical theoretical literature, usually it would be something as an opposition to conventional food system, which means intensified, very much driven by high competitiveness, high profits, and then alternative is, as I said, it's 
an alternative. It's other models. Usually it means less people engaged in supply chain, more value-oriented, uh, less profit-oriented, and often uh, more sustainable. So although I'm using the concept, it's quite tricky in the context of Baltics, because usually when the concept is raised in, in theoretical literature, it also goes together with very obvious organizations or, or borders of organizations. You would still have companies but they are just pursuing different business models. So here, quite often, you don't have companies. It's just person who is doing something differently, and he's still a part of supply chains. Well, officially, he could be framed as part of black market, so maybe there are some problems raising from that. Yet, on the other hand, a person who otherwise would have had limited possibilities to actually do something now have managed to create their own path how to be engaged in the food system. And another reason that this is a big topic is that right now we are looking for alternative food networks to conventional agriculture in light of the changes we see globally. Um, that's something we talked about, that the European Union is seeking these answers. And although there's an alternative network here, it's not being, I, I guess, articulated or embraced or communicated in the same way. Yes. To start with, I think that although the general consensus in the European Union is that we should look for a more sustainable food system. Although we are saying the same thing in Latvia, and although officially we love to claim that we are among the greenest countries of the world, we still feel that economically we are partly left out. So most of our practices, official practices, are going to support intensification, uh, support enterprises that promises high global uh, gains in, in when they enter global markets. So our practices mainly are going in direction of uh, business as usual. With that being said, the practice that I just described, the fact that we still have subsistence farms, the fact that people are going to forage, are very much possible part of the solution Europe is searching for. So while most of the academic literature is saying we should address uh, farmers' markets, we should look at direct purchasing uh, strategies, we should uh, look at community-supported agriculture, so we should engage with these huge notions developed somewhere. Actually, when you look here, there are solutions rooted in the culture. So maybe we shouldn't look for these organizational uh, models, how to resolve what's problematic with the food system, but we should just look around at uh, our maybe sometimes archaic evidence of what people are doing. Yeah, the local traditions and heritage yes. and what's here rather than pulling the answers from the outside. And that's a recent topic of study that you've been looking at is what is the Latvian knowledge that's being contributed to these larger notions of where we're going in the food system. So would you mention the research paper that you currently have under review about how you guys are contributing to the larger food conversation? We are part of the conversation. We aren't really contributing any new ideas. In Eastern Europe, it's quite often that people would use, for example, concept a sharing economy, which is quite common also in uh, in some theoretical work in uh, states and in Canada. It isn't so common in mainstream debate in Europe. People who are using it, they are saying that we should uh, use concepts like quiet sustainability, which means that quite often when you look at the people from Eastern Europe, they are sustainable, at least to some extent, but they never frame their practices as sustainable. They actually perceive them from the perspective of culture, not from the 
perspective of ecology. And although we see that in this part of Europe there are these solutions, they aren't actually reaching the general debate about food. So they aren't these concepts aren't integrated in the general perspective on how we should debate alternative possibilities. What kind of concepts are you referring to when you say that? Uh, sharing economy is one of them. Uh, then uh, subsistence farming is the concept that is used in a broader debate, yet it's significantly wider and more prominent in uh, this part due to, again, Soviet heritage. And meaning that, meaning smallholder farmers? Yes. yes. Uh, then uh, foraging, although it is used in uh, other parts of Europe, it's mainly associated with lifestyle practices, with emerging new trends. But then here it is associated with very substantial part of what people are serving on their tables. So, and I'm not trying to present the local community as backward or relying only on what they can find in, in meadows or forests, but rather that they consider culturally that that's an important practice to actually create some part of the food they are eating for themselves. Well, I think it's a lot about fitting into the new world because we have these new terms that are coming into our language and their global terms and their global notions. And then it's a matter of looking at how does that fit in to the local culture, the local heritage and the local possibilities of what you can do here. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that once I started to study foraging, I realized that we have significantly more in common with, for example, uh, Brazil and the rainforests there and communities living there than some of the Western countries. And it's not that I try to draw broader. I think that that there are similarities everywhere, probably. It just what I'm saying is that although we frame ourselves as very much modern and, and that only modern solutions will be the ones that will provide us some possibilities for the future, we shouldn't really disregard other options that are there. So from my perspective, the future isn't just one direction. It's a, it's a mix. And probably if we are looking what is the main message for the next 10 years, it is that we should look for this mix. On the same time, we shouldn't drop the idea that something will be digitalized, but we shouldn't also drop the idea that foraged food will be important. Yeah. And let's dig in a little bit more into these notions of wild food and foraging, which are also making a kind of hip come back thanks to fine dining restaurants and people realizing that they have all kind of resources available in their backyard. You've also been studying that practice here. I think it'd be great to start by giving a little context of how important foraging is to the Latvian identity and how people engage with it. And then we can go and talk about the kinds of uh, the recent research paper you did regarding the different types of okay. foragers there are. So the two loudest numbers to give uh, as an example to illustrate how important foraging is in the region. And although I have numbers for Latvia, I know that in Estonia and in Lithuania and in Belarus and in parts of Russia, the practice is very important. First thing is that around 75% of people in uh, representative surveys are claiming that they have foraged at least once during the last year. And the number is we should uh, take it very cautiously, and mainly because the number will differ depending on of a, how good of a berry year or mushroom year it is. But just the fact that the number of berries in the forests are affecting how many people are going to forage is illustrating the point that people are aware of what's happening in the forest. And if they see that there is a lot of... Uh, fruit there, they will go and try to get it. Or as one uh, respondent uh, suggested that it's like, if you had just money lying in the forest, you would probably pick it up 
So, so for him, it wasn't so much about should he do it, but as a well, it's stupid not to do it because it, it's a common thing to do it. Yeah, and money the, growing on trees if you view money yes, in a different way. Yes, and the second thing is that if you start to look at the amount of wild products harvested and you do disregard mushrooms but look only at berries, the estimates would suggest that the number is higher than the official apple harvest in Latvia for the same year. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, again, you have to take the number with, uh, with caution because apple industry is still developing and also because we have a high number of unregistered uh, apple uh, orchards in Latvia. But still, that just illustrates that once you look at forest as a possibility to obtain uh, berries or, or fruits, it is an important source for people. And some of them are doing it for self-consumption, some of them are doing it to, to sell it. And that's actually, again, very interesting that we started this conversation by the by stating the fact that Latvia is a very depopulated country or the density of population is very low. So it quite often means that economic possibilities are very few in countryside. So just the fact that you can rely on nature in, to an extent gives these people some possibilities. Yeah, and that research led you to realizing that there's really four kinds of foragers. Who are they? How are they characterized? What's their deal? Okay, so recently I conducted uh, qualitative uh, interviews with uh, foragers across Europe, in in the Netherlands, in Estonia, in Finland, in the UK, in Latvia, and in Lithuania. I came up with the conclusion that if we are looking at foragers, uh, we shouldn't address them as one group, because we can identify foragers all across Europe. But if we are addressing them all as acting in the same way, we are losing different possibilities for future planning of how we could address these groups. So the four groups identified are cultural foragers who are basically, well, you could say Latvians and Estonians are called typical cultural foragers, which means that although they are going for harvest, they actually don't care even if they don't manage to find any mushrooms or berries. They are just enjoying being in the nature and by doing it, by foraging, they develop uh, links to particular milieu that surround them. Then uh, there are lifestyle foragers and these are the groups that are rediscovering foraging in the Netherlands, in the UK, who are very well read. They are willing to travel long distances to forage. But then the interesting thing is that quite often they have very particular perspective of what wilderness means. So many of them are a little bit afraid of, of really wild forests and they are choosing to forage in parks rather than uh, than uh, unmanaged forest. So then there are subsistence foragers and these are going really for a particular amount of berries and they their only goal is to get their uh, preserves for the winter. They have quite limited territory where they forage and uh, and quite often that is for them a practice that allows community to be connected because if they know the person who owns the forest and they have agreed that they will forage there. And that's a different question, of course, who owns the forest and what's the relation between forager and owner uh, and uh, forest owner. But let me address it in either another podcast or later <laughs> and now get to the forest group. And forest group is uh, commercial foragers. And this is the group that can do the most damage. But again, it, it's a very diverse group. And with uh, modern supply chains and with the connections and with ability to, to use uh, modern technologies to quickly link Latvia's countryside with uh, Paris dining table, 
that's where the problems possibly emerge because suddenly you have uh, a market uh, that doesn't have any limitations. You can just sell whatever, how much you have. So, so it means that if somebody wants to exploit the system, they will be able to exploit the system. But then if you manage to recognize that there is this group that is potentially dangerous, but then there is three other groups that might be actually helpful in order to build new relations to nature, then maybe we could start to, to frame our policies, frame our engagement with these people in a way where we explain exploit what's good and then build some borders around what's bad. Yes, and I would love to dig into that. I think first to understand how are people exploiting the market when it comes to the global supply chain and then wild foods, um, which is not super regulated generally and it's kind of this emerging topic and there is a black market that you just mentioned that exists around it. So how are people exploiting the market in this way? So there are the, the first thing to mention here is that it's not happening just here. It's you will observe the same thing all across Europe. The things that unites them all is that actually when you look at the typical supply chain built around farm, you have a, a place where the product is grown. So if somebody wants to control it, you just go there and you see what's done there. But then for wild products, you never know what's coming from where and you never control the process when person is foraging. So if somebody is really keen to get the product, he can just go at night with a torchlight and then forage something. So a lot of that is related to trust because we won't, we won't have the, the means to hire sufficient amount of inspectors that will uh, well, monitor what's happening either in meadows and forests. How it is done is one thing that products can be connected to global supply chains that allow individual pickers to send products just for a long distance and reach markets that previously they weren't able and they are just harvesting to amount that is unsustainable. Uh, then also we see that there are in some cases emerging enterprises that are collecting and helping people to, to reach these global markets. And again, it's not necessarily bad. We should be really cautious when we look at these enterprises because in Latvia there are something like three, four enterprises currently with a turnover exceeding 1 million uh, euros selling wild blueberries to China. And uh, these and that's regulated. And these are regulated, and some of them are partly shady because they can basically, if they have a truck full of frozen berries, they can carry it to other country and claim that it has been uh, foraged somewhere else. So, so if you want, you can easily cheat the system, but that's, I think, everywhere the case. But then you see that some of these enterprises are very responsible in what they are doing and they have awareness of how much they can do and uh, what it means for people who are foraging that they are there and they are providing a stable income. And uh, an interesting example for me came from a, a herbal tea sector where you see that quite often uh, local people from cities who decide to, well, that's the case of Latvia I'm referring to now. I have interviewed, uh, I think, seven herbal tea uh suppliers and for most of them the story was quite similar they lived in Riga they decided to move back to countryside they didn't know how to farm they wanted to maintain the forest next by so they what they did uh, they introduced a herbal medicine or herbal farm 
they applied for funds, bought uh, a drying machine and a cutting machine and started to develop brand of herbal medicine teas. And uh, the interesting thing is that in order to be more appealing to customers, which they knew were looking for organic thing, for healthy thing, and are willing to pay more, they actually, some of them certified forests surrounding them. And now they have surrounding uh, organic forests, which were helpful for uh, beekeepers next by. And uh, then uh, they started to reintroduce some plants that were lost for, for a while in the area. So they were doing a lot of things that just a lot become... of restoration to the area yes yes so and these are cases where you see that actually the fact that somebody is perceiving a local wild environment as a business opportunity it it actually helps the nature it sounds like they really become stewards in this which which group do these guys fall under of the four the well, ones you're describing now they are now. commercial foragers but okay. so but that's what i tried to mention well, that's what I tried to illustrate when I mentioned that commercial foragers are a very diverse group. Yeah, it's a wide range of what they can be and what they can do. And I think you were mentioning how, uh, in this case, because these people have moved from urban areas back to the countryside, they tend to be better at marketing than farmers have been traditionally just because they have this perspective of you know how to make wild foods maybe a little bit sexier. But you also throughout this great term yesterday, which was wild washing compared to green washing. So can you just touch a little bit more upon those notions as well? Yeah, although I find it a very interesting concept, I think it's not so out of extraordinary. Because if you look uh, at the shelf of a shopping mall where all these products are lined in a huge line, you will have noticed that quite often people are adding some uh, phrase saying that you will have wild bilberries here or you are having wild cranberries here in this product. And although that's a small notion, suddenly you feel that that's a product where you have a higher added value for health. So that's what I would say is a wild washing. And uh, I didn't really pay attention to that until I noticed that I, I keep noticing the same products all across Europe that you have these wild ingredients added everywhere. So it's not just a local thing. You will observe that somehow people are perceiving wilderness as healthier everywhere and marketers have noticed that. And that isn't probably so surprising. It's just that you have to pay attention to that and it just illustrates how important the wilderness still is for consumers everywhere. Going back to this notion of commercial foragers, when you were talking, one thing I was wondering is about the volatility of this market, considering that it is dependent on nature, and nature is changing a lot now based on climate change, and compared to conventional farming, maybe you don't know how much you're going to harvest, or it's not as standardized, or it's more biodiverse, so there's different elements that go into it. So one question is, what kind of policies do you think we need to be thinking and considering, and then what's the volatility of these markets when it comes to selling them? Well, typically, in almost all countries, there are something said regarding who can access forest where and when. Typically, in the Nordic uh, or northern part of Europe, the access to forests is less restricted than if you compare it to western part of Europe. Al although there are possible limitations, still, in, in Latvia, for example, if forest owner doesn't want you to be in his forest, then he can forbid you. But the possibility to do that, it's, it's just so complicated. And then because 50% of this forest is owned by state, it's still state cannot just say, no, we will prohibit all inhabitants to, to access forests. And it's hard to track someone who's in the forest and yes. their behavior and what they're doing. And So 
it, it's uh, although you have these regulations, it's very much uh, related again to the culture. And then if you have the culture, then the regulations are actually uh, very hard to, to implement, to track, because people are doing what they used to do. And then you see these very interesting conflicts, fascinating conflicts, when uh, people from... Uh, former Soviet Union are migrating to, to Western Europe to work there, but they are still continuing to forage. And for them, it is just a way to make sense in this whole new world. But they still have this cultural practice they can uh, they can engage with. So they are going in the forest and mushroom pick because nobody else is maybe doing that. And then you see that local communities start to frame them in various ways, saying how they are exploiting our local resources and they shouldn't be foraging in our forest. So, so you see these cultural tensions emerging surrounding wild products. Additional thing to say here is that in Latvia, foraging, although it has always been a very important part of, of people's daily routines, if you could say so, it really kicked off in 2009. And that's an interesting number because the year is when the economic crisis hit. People realize that they have this safety pillow beneath them, especially in countryside, which were hit the heaviest, that you can actually... And, and that's very unsustainable. I know that people are going in the forests and suddenly once their conventional markets are, are collapsing, that they are looking towards nature and can it save, save them. If we are honest probably then it wasn't the most sustainable industry for a couple of years but then it normalized once the economy got back but uh, although you have foragers the amount of produce they are carrying out of forest differs depending on the context and if it's only for their own subsistence it's it's actually not so high once they start to sell it it, it can raise significantly the amount of producers selling is related to other opportunities. So basically, regulations depends on what's happening on uh, this context in the surrounding areas and on what's what other opportunities are there for people. And so probably it's not so much about what we regulate at what time, but how policymakers actually manage to be sensitive regarding the contextual factors. I'm just wondering if there are any ideas of policies in generals, because the way you painted the picture, obviously there's complex and there's a lot of dynamics at play in terms of the relationship to nature, the amount that you're harvesting, where it's going, how you restore what you've taken. Um, and maybe that's also related to practices passed down from culture in terms of how you look at the practice of going and taking wild foods. Well, for me, it's two points that are quite obvious how we should address the issue, but they aren't obvious when it comes to implementation. When it comes to wild things, we should actually be okay with the fact that we won't be able to regulate everything because it, it is not possible. And we have evidence accumulating that in the cases where when countries are trying to do that, they are usually failing to some extent. And uh, then the second thing is that while we cannot really engage through the policy side, we can try to facilitate communities to, to actually feel some sort of ownership over the products they are having. So to my mind, the answer isn't really a, a state-level answer. It's a, a ground-level answer where well, communities should really regard their resources as their resources. And it's it's nothing new. It's basically we mm. have observed it everywhere. 
I think for me, what's new is that even in this westernized context, we still should use the same ideas that resources or natural resources, consumable resources, are important to communities and they might be dependent on them. And not that they will starve if they won't get their daily berry dose because, well, welfare systems are functioning just great. So people will get the support package if they cannot afford their food. But it's just a mechanism for the diversity and a mechanism to serve different uh, dishes on their the table. So they have stakes in that and these stakes need to be clarified and shown and then they will sort it out on their own. Have you seen that working anywhere where the community locally was really strong in terms of being able to stop people from overpicking or overexploiting the resource? So there are a couple of occasions where I have observed that people basically the, the marketing structures surrounding wild products have turned out to do much more than, than they originally intended. One is that you do it on your own. Second, that you have sort of middleman who is somewhere near whom you sell the produce. In Latvia, the network of middlemen is, is vast. You have a couple of thousand of middlemen who are relatively active because some of them just gather a couple of kilos of berries while others are really strong uh, collecting points where you get something like three, four, five hundred kilos per day. And uh, what happens, some of them are emerging as, as what I mentioned before, these stewards of, of nature, or you mentioned that stewards of nat- nature, that they are starting to keep track of who is doing what, how much they are selling, what support they need. And, and interestingly, it's not just about nature, it's about social support. Although quite Often these are illegal business people. They aren't registered anywhere. Still local municipality comes to them and says, so we have this new support program or we have this new instrument. Could you please communicate it further to people who are foraging berries? By doing so, they are becoming a center where actually people meet and, and discuss what they need and how they, think, how they are doing things. So and and that's something you cannot notice if you are looking from very far away you really have to look at things that are happening on the ground level. Yeah, because I think that's the thing that's so fascinating to me in this conversation is this idea of it's not very transparent and maybe that's okay because it's been so against what we've seen now in the way that our world works that the idea of having an industry that's not really regulated and we accept that. That's the nature of this industry. So that's why I'm So curious to hear more about how people are then reinterpreting transparency, what it means to be transparent or the level of transparency they're okay with in this space. Well, to be honest, I don't think that people who are engaged in in this industry is actually talking about transparency. The interesting thing is that one of the largest enterprises is the only enterprise who I have interviewed and I have worked in food industry for quite a while and I don't see too many local enterprises adapting thing called uh, sustainability plans and then i see this very uh, collecting enterprise that is quite large to latvian standards and it has adopted sustainability guidelines saying that 
we will do that to ensure that actually our practices are sustainable both economically, socially and ecologically. When you look at these larger enterprises that are transparent, they are quite aware of what they are doing there. But then when you look at the ground level, I don't think that they are framing themselves in the concepts you just gave me, like like transparency mm. or lack of transparency. They are just doing things and then how it turns out depends on individual who is in the center and what is their motivations and when you see that there is a sufficient number of people who has motivations that actually coincide with social needs and interests and uh, communities emerge that manage to to change something hmm. yeah and i think you mentioned that as well that when you were doing these interviews on the four types of foragers it was lifestyle foragers who were really able to name the ethical considerations for yes. why they were doing but otherwise that was not how people introduced and explain themselves in this context. Yes, once you get to these cultural foragers, they frame it as a part of their culture, they frame it as a part of what they have done, but they have never thought that there is an ethical perspective. I imagine that's because culture on its own already implies sort of how you have dealt with things historically. So an ethics as a notion is much more modern thing. And so it comes with lifestyles that, that you actually, my lifestyle perspective of myself holds some dimension of where I stand ethically. Yeah. So now moving into the final portion of our conversation, I'd like to ask you a couple big questions. And the first one is, what will be the future of the food system in 10 to 15 years? Well, the answer probably for me is twofold. And one, that there is a significant amount of diversity in food systems, much more pronounced than it is now. And although we see that currently everything is centralizing, probably what we will observe is that even in this centralization, there slowly emerges sort of localization. So, so even in centralized aspects, you will see that even retail chains will adapt for, for local peculiarities. And, and that just means that we will have a little bit differently framed competition. Um, digital aspects, everything related to digital will have a massive effect. First of all, because it allows to control, well, everything that's happening in the food chain in real time. It allows to, to just to follow up where product is coming from uh, and where product is going. Um, I think everything related to finance will have a massive effect on, on food system, which means that if states will come up with new mechanisms supporting new business, we will uh, see that new practices will emerge. But if it won't be done, then probably... Private investors will be the ones that will maintain funds and we will see most of the diversity emerging underneath these umbrellas of huge enterprises. So we will have uh, still huge mega brands, but they will be much more diversified as uh, they are today. And what do you think that will mean for Latvia in 10 to 15 years? Well, that's again very debatable. For me, we are in a hotspot. We are in between very many discussions. And first of all, that means that if we, if there will be diversity somewhere, probably this region will provide much more diversity than anywhere else because we will have Russian influence, we will have European influence, and then we will have 
actors from outside who is willing to influence EU's and Russian relations through the countries that are laid on the border. So there will be a lot of investments in supporting various uh, ideologies. And, and well, I think that that's rather good for us because it's, it's good to live in a place where there is uh, pronounced uh, food diversity. But then uh, the interesting thing is that probably we will have reduced number of small farms. We have currently very high number of small farms, uh, which will mean that we will lose sort of at least part of connections that we have had with food production. Probably our connection to nature will be uh, much more polarized. People living in cities, which will have increasingly higher number of foreigners, will have less emotional ties to forests. But then again, in a countryside, these ties will remain. And people who will have from cities links to countryside will maintain the links. And what are we missing to make this vision of the future reality? To my mind, business as usual, which is most probable future, implies that it will happen automatically. But then again, the question is which part of the food system we want to change. And uh, the one thing I mentioned that will have a huge impact on the future is access of funds. And I think if we want to facilitate change at any level of supply chains, we have to ensure that actors who are willing to make a change have access to money to do that. Because quite often we assume that people are not doing things because they, they don't care. But if you are in a food system, it is highly likely that you are locked in particular pathway. And you just you are dependent on everybody, on, on the suppliers, on consumers, on your bank who has provided you previous loan. So it's not so easy to change the pathway you are on. If we want to actually change to happen, we have to stop things that people are actually not willing to make a change, but we have to think about that maybe they are, they just lack the means to do it. And when it comes to your work, are there any collaborations that you're looking for or ways that you'd like to partner with others? Well, definitely. I, I think that future of science isn't in uh, tackling uh, well problems sociologically but as well and i'm saying that because i'm sociologist but i think that future of science is leaving siloing outside and actually trying to provide answers so any collaboration is welcome and i imagine just by collaborating we already will have a better understanding of, of what's happening what about in terms of nordic and baltic collaborations they they will happen quite naturally, but they have to be harvested because there are so many good things happening currently in the, the Nordic countries. But uh, also they will happen naturally because our interests in terms of we have significantly higher share of forests here. We have significantly lower density of population, which means that thinking have to be completely different what you would have from, for example, thinking in Netherlands where you have 400 people for square kilometer. And these shared needs and shared uh, possibilities is what will bring these countries ever more closer. Is there anything, I wonder, uh, that you think the Baltics are learning from the Nordics or the Nordics can be learning from the Baltics that we can address here and now? Well, I think that we are learning a great many things from Nordics and uh, mainly because the food discussion is so vibrant in, in the Nordic countries, well, and then partly also because uh, 
Nordics are being quite generous and open with funding. So so it is appealing to, to look at what Nordics are doing and try to understand how we can adapt it to local situation. Circular economy is one thing that I doubt that it would have gained a momentum here if there weren't any Scandinavian funding attached to it. And then, uh, and that's neither bad nor good. It's just how things happen. That if you give a carrot, things will happen much quicker. Uh, regarding uh, what we could learn uh, in an other, well, vice versa. Well, I would say that that this food subsistence thing is something we could share. Well, also unregulated things. It's a, that's my personal perspective. I haven't done any research on that, but I feel that that is quite often the case that in Baltics and in many post-socialist countries, that's the remaining aspect of, of socialism is that not everything have to be strictly regulated constantly, and that's a tricky and slippery slope. I know, but still, to my mind. Future requires quick responses, future requires trust, and future requires some sort of ability to react. So, And that means that we won't have a blueprint for how to resolve all the issues. We, we will have to relay that people will be able to resolve the issues they have. And that means just losing a little bit of control and giving a little bit more uh, entitlement, uh, empowering uh, the, the local actors and giving them more rights. Thank you. And last question is, what's the best way for someone to get in touch with you if they'd like to collaborate? And you didn't mention any specific collaborations, so feel free to chime in with upcoming uh, things that you're like, I'd love to work with someone on this, if there are any. If you are interested in my work, just hit me an email, michaelis.grievins at gmail.com. Don't uh, hesitate, no matter what's the question. I'm, I'm uh, curious to continue the debate we just started and then curious about any possible future projects. Because as I said, I think that, that the future is diverse and we shouldn't really say that this is our track, we should be open. So you are open. All right. That's a good way to end on. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. All right. That's all for today. So what were your thoughts on this episode? I'd love to hear them. Feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or Instagram or email me at nordicfoodtechpodcast at gmail.com. If you really liked it, consider becoming a patron and supporting the show for a few dollars every month. The link to do so is in the show notes or visit www.nordicfoodtech.io. Your contribution will make all the difference and enable me to tell more good stories about how we're creating a better future through food. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.